0: Welcome to another episode of Criminal Justice Podcast. I am Jacqueline Polverari. I'm the founder of Evolution Reentry Services in Brantford. And we would like to introduce and welcome today, a very special guest, Amy Ralston. Did I say that? Amy Ralston-Pova, right? That is right. It's Ralston-Pova. Ralston-Pova. <laughs> um, kind of like Polverari. It's it's. <laughs> tongue twister but she is the founder and president of can do foundation and I will let her explain
1: that um so welcome thank you so much Jacqueline I really appreciate you having me on your show um okay so the can Do foundation is an acronym for clemency for all Nonviolent drug offenders can do And I came up with it while I was still in prison. Uh, I was um, moved by all the stories of the other women that I was serving time with. In particular, my roommate, who was Asian, her name was Lao Chin Chin. And I looked through her um, PSI. That was back when we could access our... And for our listeners, the PSI is... because. Most people that listen don't. Yeah. Uh, Pre-sentence investigation. It's also um, a PSR, which is pre-sentence report. And it's what the judge uses at sentencing. Uh, It's literally boiled the trial down to a few pages. And when you read your PSI, uh, at least in my case, and so many other people I think would agree, sometimes you read it and you go, who is this person? I don't even recognize. Yeah, that was mine too. (laughs) I'm like, um, really? Uh, Because it's not exactly taken from transcripts. It's the government's version and a probation officer writes it up. And really the only thing you get to add is your schooling and whether or not you had a good home environment. And, uh, then, somehow these numbers are calculated where a judge just goes to a chart and then sentences you based on, okay, she's a first offender. And, uh, all the drugs in the case puts her at a level 38. Uh, they tried to pump me up to a level for life. Yeah. But I, I,
0: people don't understand that. You know, it's all numbers, you know, yeah, 13. Oh, she's a good, she, she said she did it. I'll bring her down to 12. Oh, wait, she bounced a check once. She's back
1: up to 14. <laughs> right. It's a calculation. And the judge will sit there and say, my hands are tied. So he mm. can't take into consideration any mitigating factors or um, really anything other than this, this pre-sentence report. So when I read my roommate's pre-sentence report, There was nothing in there negative about her. It was staggering. What year was this? Oh, let me see. So this was in the 90s. It was somewhere around 98, 99. I was seeking clemency at that time and was making some progress in great part due to the fact that David France was a journalist for Glamour magazine for a very short period of his career. He doesn't even put it in his resume anymore because he went on to become an Oscar nominated documentarian and also I think editor-in-chief of U.S. News and World Report or or, or one of those magazines. And Glamour had hired him to write some sort of hard-hitting pieces, some serious pieces instead of you know, pieces about how to um, find a uh, a man and whatever. And you dress know dress
0: appropriately for that <laughs> date. Right,
1: yeah. <laughs> how to impress your date's mother or- Yeah, right. <clears throat> about orgasms or whatever. Anyway, uh, so he reached out to me. I think I was the first article he wrote for Glamour and he Googled- um drug cases because he'd seen something on PBS frontline uh it was co- about sort of the underbelly of the drug war and was intrigued and he came across my name popped up on the internet and so uh, anyway he he wrote about my case he wanted an exclusive and I told him, I really, really only want to do it if you will focus on the conspiracy law, because up until then, everything was being blamed on mandatory minimums. Yeah, And yeah. I didn't get a mandatory minimum. I did get, and this is confusing for listeners. I got mandatory sentencing based on the chart, but a mandatory minimum is, is something a little bit more specific. I, to this day, I can't really even explain it, but conspiracy back then did it have minimum mandatory minimums or conspiracy well conspiracy is the first thing that happens to you because most of the women including myself um it would be difficult to indict us at all if not for the conspiracy law because there, it's it's a it's a net where if you were associated with if you gave somebody a car ride if you spent money Ah, uh, if you did this least little thing, you're guilty by association. Correct. And so you can indict a girlfriend, wife, mother, grandmother, aunt, um if someone's just living in your home and and involved in the drug trade, right. And so uh, I took the position I was constantly trying to take the position that we really need to focus on the conspiracy laws. Because that's the first thing that that hooks us, and the mandatory sentencing and mandatory minimums is the last thing that that um, is used to um, cause you to receive these crazy twenty to life sentences, twenty years to life sentences. It was insane. But, but they're weaponized. They're weaponized right. on the front end, as they were with me where the federal agents told me um you know you're looking at 20 to life if you don't cooperate that's what was told and to most have. women get that if they don't cooperate right but to to go back to when i was in prison with my my roommate i looked at her her pre-sentence report and the only thing they had on her was that she had passed on a message to her boyfriend from what she did not know was a confidential informant and really all the confidential informant said was tell your boyfriend to meet me in chicago at this hotel at this time and her boyfriend didn't speak english she passed on that information and really that's that's the only thing that they accused her of and this was at the beginning of the resurrection of the drug war under the reagan bush administration was put on steroids a lot of people say the drug war is nixon's drug war but um first offenders were not receiving 20 to life and the conspiracy law was not being used as a a weapon um like it was in the late 80s so i i said you know let me write your clemency petition because i was making progress in great part due to the. Glamour magazine article that David France wrote where he explained how women were getting sucked up in these conspiracy nets. And a lot of women were serving time for what their significant other had done or people they didn't even know in the conspiracy because you're held responsible for everything that happened in the conspiracy. And most of these women, I'm sorry, most of these women are all young women. Right, right. Well... Um, Yeah, because when when the feds first busted into my home, I was 28 and had only been married three years. And so because of the man I married um, and and being with him for a very short period of time, Uh, You know, I was held responsible for, you know, things that I was not even aware of, but that's another story. So I I I filled out her clemency petition and um, two senators from Arkansas had already been uh, advised of my case. And one of them was from my little bitty hometown of Charleston, Arkansas, Senator Dale Bumpers. And Senator Bumpers was sort of a mentor for President Clinton, for Bill Clinton, as he was coming up the ranks in Arkansas. And then became governor and then went on to become president. So. Senator Bumpers and 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 President Clinton were were very close friends and my parents had asked Senator Bumpers to please intervene at the beginning of the Clinton administration and at first he was like you know I, I mean my parents used to play bridge with with them it's oh, there's wow, 2000 people in in Charleston and it's a very close knit community so so he said, my mother's name was Nancy. He said, Nancy, I can't get involved. I have I voted for these laws, these mandatory minimums. And, you know, I'm really sorry what's happened to Amy. But they, he didn't know. And so many politicians didn't know how the laws that they passed were actually being used by prosecutors in an inappropriate way. And eventually wrote let, a letter stating that. So... Uh, After I lost my appeal, my 2255, which is a habeas corpus appeal, sort of your last appeal, for those who don't know, Mm -hmm. Um, my parents went back and um, to, to, to make a long story short. Uh, right about that time the Glamour magazine article came out, because nobody's going to go looking through your transcripts trying to understand how did she get 24 years? She must've done something. Everyone was saying that even friends of mine were like, well, there's more to the story. Oh yeah. People don't understand. They don't understand at all. No, it's just, uh, especially back then in the '90s, there just wasn't very much information about stories like mine. So when the Glamour magazine article came out, it was a big deal, Uh, It exposed how I and others were literally serving time for merely going to trial. If you go to trial and exercise your Sixth Amendment right, you are subject to the mandatory sentencing, which people who cooperate can escape. I mean, there's great incentives for people to cooperate because then they're not um, um, uh, sentenced. In the same way that people Yeah, it's do. a
0: trickle-down effect. And then they get somebody and they get somebody and they're all convictions. And then election time comes and look at how great right. I'm doing in convicting all these horrible people, right? I know,
1: <laughs> scourge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Back during the Bush uh, senior administration, we were referred to as a scourge. We were scourge society. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I... um I came up with the can do acronym uh, while in prison thinking, you know, when I get out, if I get out, I, I really want to try to help other people with this, this process. And the two senators in Arkansas, Senator Bumpers and Senator Pryor, um, once they read the Glamour magazine article, they were outraged that the so-called kingpin for lack of a better term. Um, And, and for your viewers, I married a Stanford Law School graduate. It's he had, he owned numerous businesses, but he got involved with MDMA when it was legal. And um, don't want to go too much into my story because it's a very long convoluted story, but I, I knew he, he had access to MDMA. I just wasn't aware of the fact that he was setting up to manufacture it. Um, He shielded some of that information from me, but I'm not trying to play the I'm innocent card. Uh, A lot of people get confused when you, when you say you didn't know everything that you're taking a position that you were completely innocent. I am not taking that position. If I had known everything, right. I, I still I wouldn't I still wouldn't have wanted to cooperate I I don't know that I would have um been adverse because I've tried MDMA and it has some uh beneficial properties well you and know uh, right now it's in the FDA and they're doing studies on it and
0: research that it's beneficial for mental yeah. health um things such as PTSD which in our case <laughs> yes <laughs> You know, but
1: well, they are doing. With- yeah, they're making a lot of progress. Yeah. So, um, again, I'm not. I'm not trying to minimize what I did, but as a educational tool, I separated from my my husband. He was a womanizer and an uh, alcoholic, and I was very young when I met him. I was 24, and I just knew that I, he was just amazing I had never met anyone like him and I really thought love 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 conquers all and we'll work through some of these issues and about three years later (laughs) I literally had to move to LA because he was very manipulative and anytime I left him uh he would beg, he would just beg me to come back and I'll change. I'll quit drinking. I'll get therapy. I can't live without you. And for a young woman that hasn't had the wisdom of life and um, nor had any experiences, the, again, the little hometown I grew up in, very few people uh, got divorced. My parents. Mm-hmm. It was n- n- never and god rest their souls i i've, I've yeah, lost the same with my family right it just wasn't uh, something that that i was exposed to that much and how to cope and deal with um a manipulative person yeah. so i moved to los angeles and uh a year later he was arrested in germany so um call me stupid naive whatever I still cared about him I still cared deeply yeah. and he was constantly trying to get a reconciliation he would even come to Los Angeles and, so, and wait this is before prison or before yeah because before. this is okay that I, I went to prison behind okay and so um I threw caution to the wind and went um to Dallas where he lived and uh his attorney over in Germany that had been assigned to him asked me to to get some money and uh well anyway it's this is going to get way too convoluted <laughs> but long story short yes. I went to go visit him in Germany and he wanted me to go around and collect money and he thought he would get bail Well, if you're a foreigner in Germany, you don't get bail. But I have letters between us where his attorney was leading him to believe and he thought he would get bail. But it was going to be a very large, large number. And I did go find money that was hidden in safety uh, deposit boxes that, that wasn't banks. But again, it's there's too many background details, right? I met with somebody who owed him money and the money was not kosher. Um, It was drug related. Um, I remember I did it one time and it was so creepy and weird to me uh, when I met with this person at a motel. I'll never forget walking out of there and thinking, I I knew I was doing something wrong and I wondered if the feds were going to just move in on me. And right. I was so nervous and I was shaking and I got in the car and I told myself, "I'm I, I'm never doing this again. This is just too, too creepy for me.
0: I didn't even know. I didn't know any of this, this background of your story
1: this fascinating right. background of your So I've never heard this. Song. Well, I've, yeah, I've, I've, I've shared it almost to the point where, you know, you get tired of hearing it yeah. yourself because um, <laughs> it seems like, you know, when you're in prison, everyone sits around on their prison bunk. And then yeah. people come year after year and say, what are you in for? And I'll never forget one time just being like, I can't, I can't share this story one more time. It's just too, but it is, uh germane and relevant in the context of women who are serving time because of the actions of other significant other to wrap this part of the story up my my husband back then my, my first husband he cut a deal and he oh my god talk about a sweetheart deal he he only served 4 years in germany But the press has always made it sound like he served four years and I got 24. Wait. yes. So he was selling it.
0: Yeah, he was knew
1: about about it. it. No, I didn't know he was. I did not know
0: about. No, you just you just got money for him like that. Right. And you end up with 24 years and he only ended up with four years. Yeah, because wrong with that picture. Well, Mm -hmm. the
1: basis of my sentence is that they could show that he had produced uh, over 3 million tablets of MDMA. So I was held responsible for all the MDMA that he had produced. But here's the kicker. What happened in Germany is completely unrelated from a legal standpoint to what happened in the United States because none of the MDMA. Uh, and I didn't even know what the heck was going on. We we were already separated and I was living in Los Angeles when apparently he decided to start manufacturing MDMA in Europe. And so none of the MDMA uh, from Europe ever came into the U.S., so it's two separate cases. The United States case was from MDMA that came that he had manufactured in Guatemala and came. Wow. To, so um, on the indictment that we shared, he served his time in Germany, came back to the U.S. and the judge that sentenced me to 24 years gave him three years probation for cooperating. So he only got three years probation and he was still apparently working with the feds to um, help them with money that was being, uh, it's all about money. Okay. And uh, there. I guess he had money in Zurich and Germany and France and the US were all fighting over it. And I think he was working with the feds Um, in in, in some capacity. So he got a sweetheart deal. And um, as so many women that I met in prison, uh, I received the longest sentence of anybody in the entire conspiracy. I think there was 15 of us that were indicted in the same indictment. And Mm. I met so many women who were the only person still serving time. Uh, Women often go to trial because they had minimal knowledge. So the feds, a lot of the time, aren't even really interested in cutting a deal with them because... Right, because they don't, yeah, they don't know. They don't have uh, that much information. And women, I believe, are just more loyal. Um, Women don't want to, you know, uh, testify against a loved one. And so often, as in my case and others, the person that you have an emotional cord to is telling you what to do. Yeah. You know, they're, they're even uh, sometimes hiring your attorney. That's a conflict of interest. So back to the women's issue and, and my roommate after I got out and I received clemency, which I, I, it it hits you like you you don't get a heads up. It's just loudspeaker, go to the case manager's office. I thought I was in trouble. Because anytime you come over the loudspeaker, it's either uh, you got to you got to do a a a UA, which is yeah. an analysis test, or a loved one at home has died, or your room has been sh- you know they shake it down and they find mm-hmm. something and your nail polish or <laughs> it's so dangerous, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, you know, and and a lot of people in the compound said they've been calling you for an hour because I was in recreation and recreation didn't have the intercom system in there. And so I, so I was shaking. I got to the unit and the door was locked. Um, There's controlled movement in prison. You got to get from point A to point B within 10 minutes and then get, you know, locked in or you're in trouble for being out of bounds So I'm knocking on the door, and they let me in. And I go to my case manager's office, who was the person calling me over the loudspeaker. And um, she was in a state of distress, and didn't really say what was going on at first. She, She said, where are you releasing to? And I was like, what do you mean? And she said, where are you going to live? And I said, well, what do you I thought you were just right? going through my file because they update your file. And I said, Well, mm-hmm. I with my parents, because I don't have a place to live. That's you know <laughs> right, yeah. Been in prison. not <laughs> on a home. That's common sense. Right. And um, and she she was she was had papers on her desk and she really wasn't looking at me, she was, you know, going through my file and Uh, so I, I asked her what's going on and it seems like it took one or two questions before she just turned to me and she said, you're going home and I have to have you out of here by five o'clock. Oh yeah. Because now, now you got to get kicked out. Yeah. And I'm like what? And she said, I need you to focus with me. I have to, I have to book you on an airlines. I have to set up probation for you. I have to get all of this done. And oh clemency God. was unheard of back then. It's not like now it's almost a household word. And um, only the president in the United States could do that for you. Right. Right. Cause we're federal, we're not okay. state. And, um, so I, I did know that the, The senators in Arkansas were making progress, and I knew that they had met with President Clinton when he was in Little Rock for an uh, an occasion. And, you know, we were getting a little bit of positive news, but we were also getting some like um, iffy news that they had talked to him. But that he didn't really, you know, show much interest. He said, "Okay, you know, I'll look into it." But they weren't. It, 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 we were far from the finish line. Right. So, uh, anyway, I remember her telling me to sit down, and I tried, but I kept jumping out of my chair like a jack in the box. Oh, God. <laughs> because when, how do you process? Thinking you've got a 24 year sentence, I still had what 12 years to go, or whatever. And um, uh, and you're suddenly told that you're going home, you're like you're walking out that day. <laughs> and I kept, I kept, I was like a baby bird, oh I my just God, I'm getting like, chills, you know. I just kept going, yeah. like, <laughs> it's <laughs> a right.
0: dream. I, this is a dream. I got to wake up because there's no way in hell I'm going home, right? And I so, and then
1: I would jump out of my chair. And I said, can I call somebody? I need to call somebody. No, we've got, I need to get this paperwork done. So I would try to sit down and I was just like, oh my God, oh my God. So your parents did not know? Nobody knew, nobody knew. And I had somebody who was in San Francisco who was visiting me for a visit. Uh, We could have visits Thursday through Sunday and I wanted to call him because back then, I mean, I know there were cell phones, but I don't know that I, I can't remember whether he even had a cell phone. I don't know. Well, all I knew was that I wanted to get a hold of him so he would be able to come pick me up because I had to have somebody come physically pick me up at the prison location. So um finally she said go over to this other office and tell them to let you make a phone call and so i was able to do that but i came back and we you know she had to finish the paperwork and i'll never forget because when i when i walked out of her office i um was walking through a lobby the this facility is not the mental image that maybe some of your your listeners would imagine is associated with the prison it was originally like um built for uh troubled youth bo- boys and uh, there it's an a frame type building with a huge lobby common area and no bars no cells like mm-hmm. that we had wooden doors uh with a a window to look into and i just remember that I had to run to my room because she said you have to pack up everything and you have to go over to what's uh R&D receiving and seeing. yeah yeah and so I was going to my room and I just hollered yeah it was kind of like Yahoo Mountain Dew type thing and Everyone started coming to their doors. Uh, A lot of people work at Unicorn and and weren't there, but for the women who were in their rooms, you know, the doors started opening to see what the commotion was. Because you had been in prison for how long at this point? Nine years and three months. And um, now I'm trying to help women like Michelle West and Lazar Daz and so many women who have served. 20 and like with Michelle almost 30 years so I almost sound like a whiny baby over my my nine years and three no you don't I was I was I was literally on my last nerve because I'd had a few things happen to me at that time um I for for you may, and other people who've been in prison, formerly incarcerated people, if you get somebody in your room who's a snorer, uh, loud, like a Mack truck. I had that. Mm-hmm. You go through literally sleep deprivation. And uh, it was it was so bad. Um, and then she was finally moved out. And I another woman was moved in and she was shooting up heroin. And I didn't know. But I um, um, saw some blood on my blanket of my, you know, my bunk. Yeah. And I I didn't know where that came from. And somebody else told me that's people who shoot up heroin a lot of the time that the little dribble. And so I literally prayed to God. I said, if you don't get me out of here, I'm just done. And I swear to God, within it seems like just maybe a a week or two, I got this wonderful news. So I got out and I was determined to get my roommate out. And I had another interview with Glamour because they wanted to do the the happy ending story and came to my parents house in Arkansas. And so I talked about my roommate. Chen, we called her Chen, and how she was doing 17 and a half years. I don't know that I shared that she got 17 and a half years for merely passing a message on to her boyfriend, because um, as was written in her uh, report, it said that this seems harsh, but um, if we're going to achieve our goal with the drug war, it sends a message. And that somehow, if... You know, she never sold drugs. She she never did anything really. In that, she had a job um, as a manager in a um, uh, when New York used to have a um, uh, clothing industry, uh, garment industry. Right, right. She worked in, and 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 was just her whole life worked very hard. Had three children. So, the good news is that Lao Chin Chin got out on Clinton's last day. So I thought I had the recipe to success. I was like, okay, if I can get other people media exposure like I got, and I was able to communicate with this uh, some of Clinton's staff uh, because of the senators. Um, her name was Meredith Cabe, and she was uh, one of um, President Clinton's staff that coordinated, Clinton, you know, the with the office of the pardon attorney. I I felt like I could get more women out. I only wanted to focus on women. And for the first, oh, gosh, um, almost 10 years until 2014, I only focused on women. Okay. But what I did not expect was that George W. Bush would, would be elected. And I really assumed Al Gore would <laughs> would win the election. And I'll never forget that night. I was just so depressed because... Daddy Bush was really instrumental in resurrecting the drug war and was just such a, you know, a drug war champion. And I'm like, well, we'll get more of the same. And sure enough, um, George W. Bush wasn't really interested in clemency. So it was pretty lean and and uneventful. And so uh, but I started the Can Do Foundation became a nonprofit in 2004 Even though when I got out of prison, I already kind of had the acronym in mind and was working on trying to help women and created a website and put up their faces and stories, because that's how David France found my story was on the Mm. internet. So I really thought, okay, I know how to do this, but it's never as easy as it seems. And so I did a film because I wanted to show, I wanted there to be proof that I somehow was contributing some way to this movement. And I was gonna do a a documentary on the drug war. Uh, Then a a documentary came out on Showtime by a guy named Kevin Booth, who I'm now friends with. And he covered most of the things in- That you were going to cover. Yeah, that I was, was wanting to cover. And so I filmed a bunch of people in law enforcement And already had them um, those interviews in the can, as they say. And I decided to do one on marijuana because I thought, you know, marijuana is the I knew people who were serving time for marijuana. And I thought, I think that will be easier. And I don't want to replicate this other documentary. It's easier to
0: explain, too, I think.
1: Yeah. So I did 420, the documentary and started around 2011 and finished it in 2013. It won uh, Best Documentary Feature at the um, Awareness Film Festival in Santa Monica. And I was shocked because I was up against another documentary where Sharon Stone was the executive producer. Um, called Femme. And I almost didn't even go to the award ceremony because I was so exhausted. I, I, I literally just finished the documentary in time to be able to submit it. And um, somebody said, you gotta, gotta go. And so (laughs) I had no, I missed that. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Mm -hmm. I, because I had my premiere the night before the awards ceremony and had an after party. And so I was so tired. I had no makeup and my hair wasn't done. And I put a hat on and I went (laughs) to the awards ceremony. Not (laughs) thinking you were gonna win anything. (laughs) And when they said 420, the documentary, I was shocked. I was (laughs) just, what? (laughs) Because this was a first time effort I you know never uh, ever tried to put my toe in in the 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 that entertainment industry world. So I finished that and my point for bringing it up is that in 2014 I received distribution from Gravitas. I'm proud to say I've earned my investment back probably two or three times and then Obama uh, President Obama kicked off Clemency Project 2014 right about then, so the timing was perfect because I had finished that film, and when he kicked off Clemency Project 2014, I was the only organization, nonprofit in the nation that focused on clemency. Right in our mission state, not pardons. You 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 specifically well, right? Other organizations got into the clemency business, but they were like, for example, FAM is Families Against Mandatory Minimum. It's not in their mission statement to focus on clemency. Mm -hmm. My mission statement was clemency and everybody on my website, I was trying to help with clemency. So I was invited to DC to attend the kickoff dinner for Clemency Project 2014 by organizations that were making up the uh, what we now call CP14, Clemency Project 2014 mm-hmm. panel for the Obama administration. And while I was there, uh, someone walked up to me and, and, and said, your case started a war in the pardon office. And I didn't even know who this was. And I said, oh, uh, I'm sorry, What? who are you? And he said, I'm Sam Morrison and I used to work at the pardon office. Anyway, this is too much of a departure to tell that part of the story, but he told me that I wasn't going anywhere, that a staff attorney had my case, and she actually, according to him, hated me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because she was a former prosecutor and she felt like the media exposure that I was getting was making the Department of Justice look, look bad. bad. Mm-hmm. So he said she wrote you up for a denial And he said, you know, even with the Clinton administration, because they had asked for my case um she was determined that um, I wasn't going anywhere and they would not send it over to the Clement uh, Clinton administration. Oh, wow. And so I really got the inside story from his perspective. He's on my advisory board now. He went on to become a whistleblower and shared some some stuff that was going on at the office of the pardon attorney that was, um, you know, uh, led to the Roger Adams, who was the pardon attorney when I got clemency. He was accused of malfeasance and had to step down. So I've really been around to... To understand more and more and more about how this process works. And I started doing vigils in front of the White House holding up posts. I have watched all the videos. I, I needed to know you impressed
0: me so much. I've seen all the visuals. Oh my <laughs> god, your story is just amazing.
1: Well, I want people to know that we're not just putting you on a website, we really we communicate directly with prisoners which is a little bit unique it's 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 not something that other organizations want to do maybe because it's cost prohibitive but i've always wondered why other organizations that are very well funded do not do the one-on-one and in fact we've kind of become a clearinghouse for sister organizations who constantly reach out to us and say um, do you have, do you have do you know any women who were shackled when during labor? Do you know mm-hmm. anyone in prison who um will benefit from the First Step Act, for example? Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um and and so it got to the point where I was like, you know, I can like that. I I can give you those names, but it took me 10, 15 years of communicating and staying in touch with not only the prisoners, their family members and knowing their background stories. And after a while, it it, it literally got to the point where I, I was doing so much free work for other organizations that frankly may or may not credit can do. Right. That I finally just said, ah, if you want a partner, um, that's great. Or if there's a way I can be compensated And I have actually worked as an independent contractor for a few other organizations that were willing to compensate me for being able to plug them in. But one thing I really am a big proponent of is that organizations, if you're going to get funding for advocating for prisoners, you need to communicate with prisoners. I agree.
0: I agree so much on that. Um, in my space, which is kind of ironic, we're in complete opposite, I get women prepared to go to prison and then stay in contact with them. And when they come home, I help them with the emotional piece of reentry, which is another whole thing. Um, and I know so many reentry companies that get so much funding, but they, I don't quite think they even have a one-on-one therapeutic no. conversation.
1: and um, so important. That's mm-hmm. so Im- uh, important that you bring that up because something needs to change. Yeah. And I get phone calls from all the people that I've been in touch with. Sometimes for 10, 12 years, I've communicated with some of these... Uh, Uh, not just women, but can do also now advocates for men, because when Obama uh, kicked off Clemency Project 2014, there were so many families who wanted us to help their loved one. And I knew several men who were in prison, like Tim Tyler, who was serving life for LSD. And I knew about his case when I was in prison. So we, we opened those doors. But they all call. I just was on the phone with someone yesterday who is having a horrible time because they they come out and they have to live with a family member, not always their the mother same. who loves them most. Yeah, it might be an aunt or whatever. And she had a situation where her nieces, who are teenagers, are very big in you know at that age in drama, and so and. An incident occurred where she was really in jeopardy of being um, maybe violated and sent back, and she had to get out of that environment, right. And so I um, am constantly getting phone calls. I'm not a reentry um organization, but we really do need um the people who are getting lots of funds for reentry. We need for them to step up when these stories come to people like myself and yourself who are not funded so that they can actually help assist with uh, housing because I know there's money in reentry and I don't know where it goes. And you know, know what if-
0: frustrates me, Amy? I spoke with a, a girl the other day who was getting out of prison after nine years and she needed. Help with money for transportation from prison to out of state to her parents' house, and her parents had no money at all. And I could not get this woman a hundred dollars. So I just did it myself. I mean, I just gave it to her because I set up the the bus ride, and I thought, this is what reentry is. I don't think people understand that when women and men come home, they can't even make choices for themselves. You're in prison, your identity is taken away, you cannot make any choices, you're re-entering into society, and you have, like you said, no home to go to, and you really need even the therapy portion of it. I can't imagine, and what fresh, this is what my passion is when they come home, the very same community they need to support them is who they cannot speak to. Felons cannot associate with another felon when they come home. And I've run a support group for women for Ranchery. I can't tell you the women that can get denied to, to, to join the so- support group from their probation officers.
1: And that has, has changed. Yeah. It has to change. That has to change because what is it they say? One in three adults now, yeah. That yeah. had some kind of you know felony in their past or run in with in some capacity with the law. Yeah, and while you're on probation, no, you don't see. even know. No, you, you could be you know what are you supposed to do? Go around and ask people personal questions? Like you can't yeah. do that with your you know medical um issues, and it it's it that that definitely has to change. And I'm although I've been pardoned now by by President Trump, I'm a felon. And some people when they got out really would have to ask their probation officers if it was okay to communicate with me, I really haven't had too much of an issue with that. But what hurts my soul is that um, precisely what you just talked about, if there weren't people like myself and 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 you that are communicating with the people while they're in prison, so that that's we're really all they know, right. um Michael Peltier is somebody who was serving life for pot and he was a paraplegic. and I wrote his entire clemency petition and communicated with him for ten years, and he received clemency from President Trump. but, uh, they have stopped in the federal system, not everywhere, because I know where they book an airfare for some people. Right. But I was worried. And I, I fortunately was able to give Michael the good news because we were we were actually communicating with the Trump administration. Oh my and God, that had to be amazing. Yeah. Right. And and he I had told him to call me that day because I, I sort of had a heads up he was going to get it and I I did not want him to have to take a bus because he's in a wheelchair and I told Michael I said Michael if you when when you get clemency or when you get word from the prison if they try to book you on a bus let me know I will pay for your airfare I'm not going to have you riding on a bus (laughs) to get home and um so that's exactly what happened. They said. Um, uh, in fact, he gave uh, one of the Bureau of prison staffers my phone number as I had instructed him, mm-hmm. and they were very nice. I was actually surprised. I didn't know whether they'd really call me yeah. or not, but they did call. Well, me. Everyone knows who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, but I I didn't know from a, a technical standpoint or a procedural standpoint if they could communicate with somebody like me. You know, they're all tied yeah. up with their own bureaucratic rules, and so I got a phone call, and he said, "Look, we we can't." book his airfare we only do that for people who are going across the pond was the term he used meaning like to Europe or whatever I don't and so I said I I I, listen I'll pay for it so we had to coordinate getting him on a flight I said you know what what time can you guys have him at the airport and he goes this is going to be really tight it was very exciting (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was it was wonderful news, and I loved the way we worked together. You know who 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 would guess? Because uh, a lot of the time, sometimes the staff isn't as amenable, right, to, right, to doing things that are helpful to those of us who are in prison. So I was just thrilled that I was in a position where I could book his oh. flight make sure they were going to have a shuttle take him. But again, the story you just shared with me about the young lady and me being able to put Michael on an airplane to get him to Florida, his brother, hes I've met his brother and I've seen Michael since he's been out. And they're just adorable. And it's one of the greatest things in the world when you have an impact on somebody and then you see them thriving at home. It is. So anyway the Can do Foundation is you know still plugging along but um I'd like to talk about you know women and so um why well, don't let we- me bring up the
0: story of how I actually talked with you right I saw a Facebook post and we're friends on Facebook. We've never had a conversation in, you know, together, you know, privately before. And I saw this beautiful picture of you crying or sad. And oh, my God. Um, and it said, I'm going to read it because I'm looking at it. I went in at 30 and was released when I was 40. My mom and I spoke to a doc about freezing eggs and he said it was likely already too late. Um And it goes on that um, you had not had children because your child bearing ages, your age was in prison. Mm -hmm. And I had never thought about that side because I work with families. So most of the women that I work with have children and my daughters stay in touch with their children while they're in prison. So I, I never, it never dawned on me that my God. And I have kids. What if I had gone in when I was 25 and didn't come home until I was even 35? I wouldn't have my kids. Exactly. So for a conspiracy charge, that affected me, that post affected me so much. And um. Be-
1: well, let me share how that came about. Um, I the Can do Foundation co-hosted a luncheon at the Four Seasons in Washington, d c, and the pardon attorney, the new pardon attorney, Liz Oyer, um, attended. And the National Council for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women and girls, President Andrea James, um moderated. The first panel, which was made up of attorneys, including um, Miss Oyer, the pardon attorney, Mm -hmm. which is a very welcome uh, breath of fresh air, because normally the pardon attorney and the office of the pardon attorney has always been sort of a black hole. You just information goes in, but information never comes out. We don't we don't know the. we don't know whether they're even looking at cases. You can't communicate with anyone. You can't get anybody on the phone. You don't even you know, there's just it's just a one. It was it's always been a one way street. Yeah. And um, Liz Oyer was recently uh, appointed as the new pardon attorney, and she has been willing to engage, um, even introduce herself in Zooms with a lot of the advocacy organizations. So it was amazing to have that opportunity to co-host along with other organizations also co-hosted. And so I was on the third panel, which was formerly incarcerated women, and uh, especially those of us who are now in activism so it was made up of Cindy Shank who her brother did a film about her called the sentence and i knew her brother when cindy was in she was on my website rudy valdez and um i know the the pain he went through filming his child her children as they were growing up without a mom um i was on the panel Danielle Metz was on the panel and I served time with Danielle and I love her dearly. She was serving triple life for things that her husband and other people did. And she was just not, she was maybe aware, but she just was not, she never deserved life, much less triple triple life. And then Kimba Smith and Kimba has just been an amazing advocate from she got out about 6 months after I did um December of 2000 I got out on July 7th of 2000 due to Clinton and so the four of us were on a panel and Andrea James asked me um about the fact that I had had no children and uh wanted me to share um my personal experience with regard to a woman now in my 60s who missed out on on motherhood. And I I it's my response was kind of spontaneous because I hadn't really thought about this aspect until I started sharing with I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna this is a very passionate subject of my children and mothers. So I said, "Well, you know, when I was in prison, I used to listen to the phone calls of mothers talking to their children. I literally had a, a phone that had been uh, placed not too far outside my cell room, right. and it it was it wasn't enclosed. So and, and in there, it's kind of like a, a, a echo chamber." And so I sometimes literally had to leave my room because I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand the, um, one woman in particular kept talking to her son and saying, if you don't stop getting in trouble at school, um, she was trying to explain child protective services. Right. Uh, His grandmother was taking care of him and, um, you know, she was trying to nicely explain to him that, you know, something worse than his mother being ripped from him was going to happen. And just listening to that, and then also other conversations about, you know, happy birthday, some mothers weren't willing to tell their children that they were in prison, they were concealing it and saying that they were on a long trip. I remember that too. Uh, And um, so I shared that, Uh, You know, I went to family day, you know, when there's a family day in prison where the kids can come in and spend the day with their mothers. And I remembered the first time I saw that. uh, I just remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm so lucky that I'm not going through this, too and seeing at the end of visitation, children, babies, crying their eyes out. Some of them are too young to understand why their mother won't come home with them. And it's, I've i have described this numerous times, how it is a scream that you cannot delete from your brain. It's not like a child who's not getting a cookie. It's a different kind of blood curdling scream of, you know, being ripped from your mother again. And I just remember thinking, I don't know how I could survive this. And um, a friend of mine actually did try to commit suicide in in prison. um, because She had a two year old daughter. And anyway. Oh, you thought you weren't coming home at the time. So it is a better alternative
0: at that time to not. I mean, I went through that pain of talking to my daughters who were in that age where they were just meeting boys and I wasn't there.
1: I wasn't able to be there. Right. And you really need that bonding before they get into that phase of, you know, oh, mom Mm -hmm. or, or, you know. Yeah. Um, So, uh. Then I went on to explain um, on that panel where you saw the, the photograph where I, I think somebody handed me a tissue, that now, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, there are emotions that now make I I envy, real. I envy um, Kimba who had a little boy um, when she was in prison. Because she's, you know, she got out in time and had another child. And I've seen how her son has grown up and is amazing. Um, he's um in fashion and um and I see her daughter thriving and the posts and Danielle has beautiful children that did grow up without her, but now at least she has children. So it's the yin and the yang. When I was yeah. in there, oh think, God, I'm not going through this too. I don't know how I could survive it. And then now um, when I got out, as I stated in that post, my mom desperately wanted grandchildren. And um, I was 40 and I said, mom, I, you know, <laughs> I don't have the financial means and I don't, how am I going to find a man if, you know, that wants to start a family? And usually you, you, um, find, you know, in relationships, the woman is usually the younger of the two as was the case with me. And I did meet somebody, um, who was the next door neighbor to one of my best friends who lived in Malibu. Um, and, so he already had a family and we got married through, I think, three years after I got out and um, I really thought I had a family. I was very invested. It's a very cohesive. Family always had the big Easter um, at our home, always did Fourth of July, um, always celebrated Christmas at our home mo- most of the time and uh, very Cohesive with birthday parties and everything like that. And then when my mother um, was put in home hospice, I had to travel to Arkansas. She didn't have a long-term in-home health insurance, and um, home hospice now just comes to your home once uh, once a day for an hour. So I was her health insurance policy. I'm the only child, my brother's deceased from cancer and, um, not to get into the particulars because it's, it's too personal, but, um, uh, you know, uh, my husband found a replacement and alienated me from the family. So at 62, here I am with no children and, um, doing a lot of soul searching, uh, because, um, I I really have no interest in being out in the the dating world and Ugh. and stuff like that. I would not want to be single today. But I tell you, you look fifty. Not even you look forty five. <laughs> sweet. But the uh, the takeaway here, and I think the 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 message that's so important to um, not only society. But our leaders in Washington, D.C. is that men and women are not equal. We we a man can get out of prison. And if he wants to have a child at 70, you know, they they can still, you know, have a biological child. That's right. And women have a window and are so many women are um, exempt from motherhood, don't get to experience motherhood. But especially in someone like myself in the shoes that I'm in now, I don't have uh, a child to care for me as I grow old and don't have you know, the, um, the loving environment that comes with a family um, to celebrate holidays with. Of course, I have friends, yeah. of course. And I have some cousins, but they're all in Arkansas. So I really want our leaders to take this into consideration. I think judges need to be able to take this into consideration, especially when a woman is being sentenced based on these crazy conspiracy laws where you're held responsible for the actions quite often of a man or your significant other. And that's where we have a lot of work to do to to bring some fairness into the um, the, the sentencing laws. Um, well, quite and- frankly, on the federal side, there's
0: no al- alternatives to incarceration for women. And these women are not a threat to society.
1: No. I made that point on the panel. I said, look at Cindy, myself, Danielle, and Kemba. We've all been out for, you know, some of us is, you know, I've been out 20 years. Kemba, same thing. I said, we have done wonderful things. And and I, I even said, we're not, we were um labeled the worst of society and I said in many ways we're the best of society we we're we're still giving back we're still trying to help bring people home and I I didn't mean to put that in the context like best as in you know um to to be um bombastic or something like that
0: frankly Amy you're not giving yourself enough credit you are. You are not funded by anybody. You don't have grants. Yeah, you. you are. Give yourself some credit, because how long have you been doing this for? Yeah, about yeah, 20 years. It's 20, 22, 20 really. years. And you've helped so many people because not because of money, because of passion
1: it's my heart and that's heart. amazing to stay
0: in this space and I think I said to you before we started recording that it's easy to be in this space for a minute to make some money get some grants I can't imagine 20 years I've been in it six years and
1: I'm tired I know we're all years? Going compassion fatigue um you get burned out I've you know it's funny the arc because everybody Everybody was kind of loving my work and can do until we really helped a lot of people come home during the Obama administration. Yeah. And then what started happening was the backlash because I I'm one person and as you mm-hmm. said, I am not funded. I don't take a salary. Nobody can Same question me. Mm-hmm. what what why I'm in this space because on Friday I do not get a paycheck and um so it's um you know it's 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 really it's really a difficult space and place to be when you're just trying to make a difference and this monster that we're up against is hydra-headed if we make progress and cut off one tentacle it seems like three grow back yeah and it's a constant. Uh, we got the First Step back passed, which is was the basis for my pardon from the Trump administration. And I was proud to work on that and help get it passed. I even got my Congressman, uh, Congressman Ted Lieu to change his position. He was gonna vote no on it because a lot of the left-wing organizations were against it. In fact, we many of us got vilified for going to the Trump White House, but I will work with any administration My allegiance to the prisoners and prisoners over politics. I'm not a political creature. I have normally leaned Democrat left. And um, but when Trump showed signs of a willingness and Jared Kushner, whose father was in prison, wanted to do prison reform Mm -hmm. and I was invited to the White House. Of course, I went. And oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't get into the vitriol of of who the president is or in our space. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. People in prison want to come home. And mm-hmm. so many people have come home under the First Step Act. So many African-American people have come home under the First Step Act because there was uh, provision in there to make the crack cocaine victims of one hundred and one uh, ratio uh, where their sentence was was one hundred times longer than people who were uh, convicted for powder cocaine. So many of them came home. Yeah. Compassionate release is now a huge thing. So I was very proud to work on the First Step Act, and um, we'll we'll always continue to do so. There was um, one other thing I was going to, it, it was about the, the women. Oh, gosh, and I've kind of lost that. Thought, anyway, it, it yeah. may come back to me. Well, but. We,
0: have, we have about 10 minutes left and I, okay. I want to talk about something that not a lot of people talk about and okay. may not be favorable in this space for, for me to talk about, but I think it's important. Um, what I notice in this space is the LGBT community in 1969 came together in unity, Stonewall, right? And they may change. Mm-hmm. Um me too movement came together in unity and they made change. Black lives matter came together in unity and they made change. Why are all of us in the advocacy criminal justice space not coming together to make change? I don't think a lot of change could be done If we're all like you and I don't work on the same things, but together, look how powerful that is. Right. You do that. Can you imagine the power of unity? And I, I don't understand it. And I've been only here six years. You've been in the space 20 years. How do you combat that for 20 years? And I'm tired of that's what I'm tired of. I'm not tired of helping people. I'm exhausted from just my own space trampling on each other, and I don't know how to navigate that
1: at all, yeah. I um you know, it's 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 hard to to really um, explain why there's such a competitive edge so often and the only thing i can think of is that a lot of the organizations are competing for the same grants i again am not funded um but i might have to get into that space because i am going through a divorce and um i worry you know i'm very worried about the not only competitiveness but the uh sometimes um disrespect And disregard for honoring somebody's work. I'm formerly incarcerated, and I have experienced, uh, you know, a situation where um, people have, you know, taken credit or marginalized me uh, when they were part of my network and wanted to help somebody that we were championing and, and, and was on my website. And instead of coming to me and saying, Amy, we would like to um, work with you. on so-and-so's case that nobody would know about if we weren't pushing them out on social media and, and sharing their stories. And I've tried, it's called working in a silo Mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I've, I've yeah. worked with people and they're part of my network because I've, I've you know, uh, want to work with everybody. And I really also try to foster that energy. And then I find out from the person in prison that, oh, so-and-so just reached into me. And sometimes they'll even say, I have a letter. Um, they said that they found my story on the CanDo website. And I know a person who wrote to them, and I'm like, they and they want to help me, and I'm like, okay, well, great. And then and you I'll and I, I both you
0: know when you're in prison, me. you just that's want to come home, yeah, you want to come and, home, yeah, and, in any and hope you want to come home,
1: right? And I'm all for that. And I say, look, if anybody can help you, of course, that's great, but uh, when you put exhaustive time and energy into uh, looking into somebody's case, looking up the background facts, um, vetting them. Um, some of them were elderly. And so then when the first step act got passed, there was an elderly release provision. What'll happen is people will start Googling and we put all our people on the website. And so they'll look to find, oh, this person might qualify for elderly release. Let's, let's reach in to that person. And so, they can put them on their website. Well, okay, great, uh, wonderful. But is there a reason why you can't just reach out to me and we can work together and say, Amy, you know, I've noticed that so-and-so is on your website, let's work together.
0: You know what I think
1: too is these
0: grants that are given are so vast and they're so large. So they're given to a lot of the same organizations every year and they have to spend the money. So what I don't understand is, okay, you have to spend the money, but let's do it together because we all have the same goals. I mean, my goal is to help women who are going in, struggling, help their families while they're there and help them navigate back into society. Your goal is to get them out into society. Someone else's goal um, maybe, you know, policy related. There's so many sentencing. There's so many variables to, you know, someone may do financial crime, drug crime. And if that person who wrote that letter said, let's work together. Wow. That
1: inmate would be home. Right. 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 No, I know. (laughs) And you would, you would want to think that it would be a welcome effort because a lot of us are friends. And frankly, um, some of us, you know, even serve time together and, um, we have to come together when we're up against such a mega force. And I, um, I really hope that somehow I don't, I don't know, but it it actually takes the, um, the heads of the well-funded organizations, and let's face it, some, some of them are. Yeah. We're talking millions and millions of dollars. Yes. Yes. Um, they could, they could micro um, uh, do some some micro grant grants to some of us grassroots yeah. organizations because you know what I could clean up with just twenty k. If well, I you know what, let's do that. How do people donate to your
0: organization? Let's all get right you. Yeah. Thank, you.
1: Thank you. Right now, uh, we have a PayPal button on the Candy Foundation. We're in the process of building a new website. My website is old and looks like it, um, but I've got uh, PayPal and You can certainly reach out to me through the website if you want to to donate. And it's it's a tax uh, deductible donation. So and that's how we've survived. I've been able to pay for the trips to D.C. I can travel based on donations, but mm-hmm. I can't pay myself a salary. Right. Um, right. And, um, but I have other people. Um, I, I I just have to throw a few names out there, like Malik King, who's our prison re- outreach coordinator. And, um, you know, I, when I go to D.C. and I wanted him to come this last time, you know, I, I pay for his airfare, I pay for hotel. We had some people come. Um, who Adrian Miller, who's a clemency recipient that we helped. And um, we use those funds for that purpose. But we need to be able to hire a few people or we're going to probably end up having to shutter our doors. Well, I am
0: going to push this for you and try and get it. It's just an amazing thing. I mean, I can't help women in reentry if you don't get them home to me. So... <laughs> So on the emotional side, we need to get you donations, and then when they come home, I can get. Yeah, thank you. I don't have to have two other jobs besides the one I'm doing. I know. And um and oh my God, I want to have you back because we can just conquer so much. And um,
1: I really am working on. I'm proud of you. Jacqueline, I, it's a huge feather in your cap. I mean, just uh, the fact that you're, you know, Yale and you're going to be a Yale alumni. I mean, you're you're going to do incredible things. I feel like a slacker because <laughs> I still don't have a college degree, and I've been thinking, okay, I've got to do something. I need to get online. I've got to do. I've got to. But I'm trying to help people, and there's only so many minutes in the day. No, you so, don't. You know what? I really believe wholeheartedly a
0: college degree is a piece of paper that gets you in my situation, I have to li- have a license right and you've learned so much more than you can in any college. so um you get the honorary degree from me. <laughs> 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 the ones behind me I'll send them to you. I'll pay you know what two of them didn't didn't accept me into their program because I'm a felon. <laughs> so you can have those. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I don't need them. And and I don't even know what direction I'm going. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just try and follow my heart. And um,
1: I love what you're doing. I think it's great. And, you know, you're going to be very successful because when you follow your heart, you, you get exactly what you deserve, which is many, many blessings. I hope so, because then it helps the women that we want to help. Right. And that's that's what matters so right